You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Please be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, by whose resurrection death has been swallowed up in victory. We are addressing the topic of apologetics today in three talks. This morning is apologetics and scripture. Tomorrow, apologetics and salvation. And Friday, apologetics and the skeptic. Wait a minute. What in the, aren't we getting ahead of ourselves? What in the tarnation is apologetics anyway? And what makes you think it's biblical? The term apologetics comes directly from Scripture. 1 Peter 3.15 Peter says, Be ready always, always, to give a defense for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The word defense in the Greek is from which we get the word apologetics, apologia in the Greek. The English derivative is to apologize, which is not the concept that Scripture is getting at at all. Scripture is not saying you're supposed to walk around going, I'm so sorry I'm a Christian, I know I'm an idiot. Excuse me for believing the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word apology or apologia actually has its origin in the legal world of classical Greek civilization. It suggests that one is in the witness box, giving a reason for the hope that is within them, establishing or stating their case with facts, with evidence, not with opinion. Part of the problem with apologetics is the word. In addition, apologetics has a bad reputation for a number of other reasons. Part of it is because oftentimes it has nothing to do with focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the center of all Scripture. Jesus Himself said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's these which speak of Me. All of Scripture is about Christ. And apologetics, when done biblically, is Christocentric. But how often that is not the case. I recently went to a two-day apologetic conference where after the whole thing was huffing and puffing and done with proving the existence of God by the, uh, the traditional proofs for the existence of God using Aristotle's works, and working mightily to prove theism, I realized that after two days, the name of Jesus Christ had never been mentioned. So you may have a bad feeling about apologetics as an idea, but actually it has a prominent place in the history of the church militant. Apologetics had its own age in in church history, the so-called age of the apologists which roughly runs from the date, the death of the apostles, to the adoption of the Nicene Creed in 325. 
Apologetics not only has a noble lineage in church history, it's represented in about every denomination in Christendom in its noble history of the defense of the faith. There have been great Roman Catholic apologists. Think of Thomas Aquinas, John Henry Cardinal Newman, Blaise Pascal, G.K. Chesterton. There have been great Calvinist apologists. Cornelius Van Til, R.C. Sproul, John Gerstner. There have been great Lutheran apologists. Wilhelm Arndt, John Warwick Montgomery, Rod Rosenblatt. There have been great evangelical apologists. J.P. Moreland, Wilbur Smith, William Lane Craig, Edward John Carnell. There have even been great apologists associated with the charismatic movement, like Walter Martin. And yes, there have actually been great Anglican apologists. We can't leave you out. You'd be terribly offended for good reason. You have William Paley, Bishop Butler, Richard Watley, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers. There is a long and noble heritage associated with the defense of the faith. In fact, you couldn't be ordained to the holy ministry early in Christian education unless you had training in apologetics. Pastors were trained in dogmatic theology, which was getting the doctrine right. They were trained in ethics, which was getting Christian living right biblically. And they were trained in apologetics, getting the doctrine and the Christian life out to the unbeliever who had objections. But today, knowledge of apologetics is rarely taught in the church. Yet we live in a time of incredible religious diversity. In my hometown of Santa Barbara, California, there are over 200 religions. I think one grows every other day. We have the noble distinction of having Druids rocking around. You might want to know what a Druid is. You haven't met one in Birmingham recently. Come visit our town. We'll appreciate the tourist dollar and you can, I'll introduce you to some. In addition to the multiplicity of religious options, we are living in the edge of 300 years of secularism where the Christian foundations of our culture are eroding and in fact are under attack. And we don't understand why Johnny went to confirmation class in 7th and 8th grade, got confirmed and was a star member of the youth group, and then went to college at the secular university and came home after one semester with a foot out of the Christian faith and both feet out by the end of the sophomore year. We can't understand what happened. That's the power of secular culture. Pastor and parents are stunned at the result. So we need to be equipped in the defense of the faith because of the nature of our contemporary situation. We have a long lineage of people who have defended the faith. The history of apologetics is stellar in the Christian church. But that's fine and good. What does Scripture have to say about it? After all, that is what you told us you were going to speak on today. What does Scripture say about apologetics? Doesn't the Bible just declare truth? The Bible doesn't defend the truth. Christians are only called to preach the truth, not defend against objections. And if they're just called to preach, we should leave all apologetics to pastor. Us slimy laity will get it wrong. We'll end up messing up the gospel in some way. We won't have an answer to an objection a non-Christian asks. 
it's better to let preaching go to those who have formal training in it. So the argument goes that God's Word does not prove the nature of the evidence for God's existence. It simply assumes it. Well, apologetics, in fact, is thoroughly biblical. The Bible does not just present the faith, it defends the faith throughout the Old and New Testament. What kind of nature of the faith does it defend? Well, not mere theism. I am not in the business of making people believers in God. In fact, the Bible touches on just the opposite. It teaches that hell is actually populated 100% with theists. In fact, nobody doubts the existence of God in hell. They just want nothing to do with God. Every knee has bent to the name of Jesus Christ even in hell. The Scripture says the devil is a theist. James 2.19 he thoroughly believes in the existence of God, needs no more evidence or apologetic on that topic. In fact, he does a step further. He trembles according to James 2.19. No, we're not interested in proving mere theism. Nor are we intent on proving a generic faith, a word that has been abused in our own time. Scripture does not put a premium on the use of the word faith in a generic God. It puts a premium on faith in the true God. It puts no premium on simply believing anything you want, but the key is the object of that faith. Jim Jones' cult in Jonestown, Guyana was full of people of faith. They had faith that drinking the Kool-Aid would send them to heaven. What about the Old Testament and giving evidence for belief? Doesn't the Old Testament look disfavorably on apologetics? Doesn't the God of the Old Testament simply command belief in the absence of evidence? Isn't faith in the Old Testament God commanded in, in the absence of any direct evidence for His existence? In fact, many Old Testament examples of prophets provide evidence of God's existence and character and give verifiable evidence of this personal God. Take, for example, one illustration from the Old Testament about the use of evidence to prove the exact, precise nature of who God is. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The text seen is 1 Kings chapter 18. Here's the setting. Elijah has a face-off with the so-called prophets of Baal. 450 of them, to be precise, versus Elijah. Fair odds and nice ratio to start off with. He sets it up as a contest for all the world to see. They will decide who has the true God is speaking for which one, for Elijah or for the prophets of Baal. The office of the prophet is on the line. In fact, salvation is on the line. So Elijah puts up the rules. Each side will prepare a sacrifice, a bull, on an altar with wood underneath it. And then each side will pray to their God. And whoever's God sends fire down to consume the sacrifice, that is the God that should be worshipped. The idea is that each side will call upon their respective God, 450 prophets of Baal, nice odds. You should be able to get your God's attention. 
since you have good odds, I'm going to even let you go first, says Elijah. And Elijah will fly solo and see what happens. And so those are the rules. Elijah has the prophets of Baal go first, and what do they do? They yell and scream and have a full-on Pentecostal revival session, except the Holy Spirit isn't present at this one. They flagellate themselves, they beat themselves, they cut themselves with rocks, and they cry out to their God all day long. Nothing happens at all from this except a lot of blood being thrown around. And Elijah, with godly sarcasm in a hilarious Hebrew text, says, maybe your God isn't in today. Maybe he's on a road trip. Maybe he's taking a vacation. Scripture hilariously adds, no one upstairs paid attention to the prophets of Baal. Then it's Elijah's turn. Does he say, well, the prophets of Baal failed, so I, by ipso facto reduction, I'm right. Follow me. He doesn't say, well, I win. You must believe me because God is, their God is radio silent. So by process of elimination, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God. No. Elijah first ups the evidential ante. This is not going to be some vague vision of Jesus in a tortilla shell in Mexico. This is going to be evidence capable of one valid interpretation. It's not going to even be a close call. Elijah directs that the old altar be repaired, that stones be put in place. And then he does something interesting. He says, pour water around the ditch dug around the sacrificial bull. Not once, not twice, three times, so we have a virtual water park. Think Disneyland, world of Orlando. There is water everywhere. And then he addresses God in a single prayer. And bam! Fire from heaven consumes the bull, the altar, the water, and the rocks. And my favorite, the dust was licked up. Notice that Elijah did not go pietistic with the prophets of Baal and tell them it was below him to offer evidence as so many Christians do today. It would be an affront to God for me to offer you reasons to believe. Well, that's funny. The apostles did. We'll see when we get to the New Testament. Elijah did not go pietistic on them. Instead, a miracle attested to the truth claim Elijah was making. The miracle confirmed the message as it does throughout the Old and New Testaments. And we don't need to go into the various miracles in the Old Testament. They go from the feeding of thousands by Moses to the healing of leprosy to the restoration of the dead to life in the ministry of Elisha. Okay, that's fine. Maybe the Old Testament has evidence for God's existence, but the New Testament surely doesn't do anything like offering unapologetic for the truth of what the apostles were teaching. New Testament examples abound. I'll only give two very short examples. Jesus' first miracle was done explicitly in John 2 to show as a sign to manifest His glory that His disciples might believe in Him. What was the evidence that was manifested? 
Nothing short of complete control over nature and time. He turned water into a Chateauneuf du Pop. No, no, a California varietal Cabernet. No, better than even the French can comprehend in terms of a red wine. Jesus hardly takes the position that belief in Him should solely rest on His mere words. I just read to you John 10.37. Don't believe My words? Fine. Believe the actions to confirm I am who I claim to be. Ultimately, Jesus proves all of His claims by His verifiable, objective resurrection, which He predicts in John 2 and which He says is empirical evidence that He is God in the flesh, the Messiah of the world. Jesus presents His coming resurrection as the people for believing a totally otherwise psychotic claim in John 11. He who lives and believes in Me shall never die. People like that are locked up in rubber rooms for periods of treatment. Jesus said, I will back that up by My literal resurrection and victory over death. In fact, the objective resurrection is the foundation for the entire Gospel of Jesus Christ. Take away the resurrection, you take away this church. There is no point in being here. Forget your morality. Forget being nice to one another. You eat, drink, and tomorrow you die and you are dust. Get what you can. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the Apostle Paul paraphrased. Ultimately, Jesus proves those claims. It is a faith founded on fact and is not a Gnostic belief cult cooked up in some dark corner by the twelve apostles that's initiated by a special Masonic handshake. This is done for all the world to see. In fact, they tell people to go check out the witnesses themselves. As a final example of the external and objective evidence that Jesus grounds His claims on, think of Mark 2 and the paralytic and the healing of the paralytic. You may recall that situation. Jesus is speaking to a packed house. There's a rumbling on the roof. The roof opens up and four guys lower a bed down with a paralytic on it in front of Jesus who is preaching to the people. Very interesting. Jesus says the first thing, My son, your sins are forgiven. Some listeners, theologians of the Old Testament of that day, said silently in their hearts, who does this lunatic think he is? Jesus, being omniscient, considering he's God in the flesh, proven it by his resurrection, that comes along as part of the baggage. He's omniscient. Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Let's take a poll here, silent. No one raise their hand because you might embarrass yourself. But how many of you think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? How many of you think it's easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Which one is capable of immediate verification? Clearly, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. We don't know that that actually is the case. But Jesus verifies His purely unverifiable claim to forgive sin by an external healing, miraculously, the paralytic. 
He heals the man and makes him walk. In short, Jesus consistently provides objective, verifiable evidence or an apologetic to prove his astounding claims and explicitly says that his, the healing of the paralytic was done so that they may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins because claims are cheap and we have them all over our society from various religion, religions about what they can do to give you lower blood pressure, a happier family life, and a successful business. The only problem with them is they can't forgive your sins. Only the God of Christianity makes that claim and gives evidence for it. Jesus claims to give victory over sin and death. All of it is verified in what J.R.R. Tolkien calls the great catastrophe of history, namely the resurrection. That is why Paul says if the resurrection didn't occur, we're of all people most to be pitied. To summarize, apologetics is biblically commanded. It's not an option, and it's not reserved for the pastoral ministry. Two, apologetics is found throughout the Old and New Testament, that is, giving evidence for belief. Three, apologetics should center on what Scripture centers on, namely Jesus and His claim to be God in the flesh and on the facticity and centrality of His resurrection. Therefore, apologetics should always be Christocentric always Christocentric and centered on Christ and His claim to resurrect from the dead, giving victory over sin. So, be ready always to give a reason for why you believe. And may the God of all comfort who raised Jesus from the dead strengthen and confirm your trust in Christ as your advocate. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.